how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, cultural back to the diversity is as critical as biological disorientation. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that planet, is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential or questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. You're listening to the Schumacher Conversations, a series of lively discussions featuring some of the foremost voices in the movement for new economics. The conversations engage prominent E.F. Schumacher speakers as they reflect on past lectures and their enduring relevance given current economic, social, and ecological realities. Any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms. Mary Berry and Bill McKibben engaged in the following Schumacher conversation, moderated by Jody Evans, on August 27, 2020. Welcome. Welcome to the Schumacher Center for New Economics Conversations. These are in celebration of 40 years of the annual E.F. Schumacher Lectures. My name is Jody Evans. I'm the co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, and I sit on the board of the Schumacher. I am super excited to moderate this conversation today. I want to live in the world these two beautiful humans give their lives to create, both with a deep connection to the earth and a delightful capacity for inspiring others. Bill McKibben is an environmentalist, author, and journalist and for over three decades has unrelentingly written about, spoken for, and organized around the need for a fundamental shift, both philosophic and practical, in the way we treat the earth and how we live, so as to find fulfillment and connection. He's written over a dozen books, but after writing two hugely influential books, End of Nature and Deep Economy, he founded 350.org and has inspired some of the largest events globally to build a movement for the planet. I was arrested with him outside the White House in 2011 when he inspired over 1,200 of us to join him to stand against the KXL pipeline. He's also been part of influencing $11 trillion to divest from fossil fuels, transforming banking and investments. Mary Berry is the executive director of the Berry Center, a leader in the movement for sustainable agriculture and a fellow board member with me at the Schumacher Center. Mary Berry grew up as a member of the eighth generation of a family that does farming in Henry County, Kentucky. She's the daughter of Wendell and Tanya Berry, 
Mary works as an advocate for family farmers, land conservation, healthy economies, urban education, and local food infrastructure. She basically works to support what is precious and essential to life. So I'm gonna start with you, Bill. We've come a long way since your lecture in 2009, the most important number in the world, 350 parts per million. You've succeeded in teaching the world that number and what it means and so much more. But what have you learned over the last 11 years? Well, first of all, Jody, what a pleasure to get to see you on the screen. Merry old friend, what a gift just to get to chat with you for a while. And what a pleasure to be uh, in the virtual Schumacher world. Uh, I, I remember with great pleasure coming down to give that uh, lecture in part because uh, I think in payment, I got $50 in Berkshires or 50 Berkshires. And what a pleasure it was to be able to go buy an ice cream with a couple of W.E.B. Du Boises and get a Robin Van Inn in return and things. It was, um, it was a great trip and hello to Susan Witt and everybody else who does this amazing work year in and year out. So yeah, I mean, in the subsequent years since 2009, um, a bunch of things have happened. Uh, and I'll just use a minute to kind of bring people up to date on where we are on the kind of biggest things that we're dealing with. I mean, there is good news in several respects. One is that um, there's a big movement that didn't exist a decade ago. Probably the biggest movement the planet's yet seen uh, this fight against climate change that's gone very global. 350.org was an early, early iteration of it. But now, thank God, there's Extinction Rebellion. There's the Sunrise Movement that's pushing the Green New Deal. There's, most beautifully, the, um, the uprising of high school and junior high school students. Uh, everybody knows Greta Thunberg, who is a wonderful person and who it's been a great pleasure to get to be friends with. But even better are the fact that there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs scattered around the planet, young people who are just doing uh, astonishing work. And all of that has been very important. The other thing that's happened on this front really matters in the last decade is that scientists and engineers have figured out more and more how to take the power of the sun and the wind and um, put it to work. Uh, cheaply and, and effectively. This is not an unmixed blessing, um, but overall, the fact that this is now the cheapest way to generate power around the planet does give us some possibility of ending the reign of the fossil fuel industry over the next decade, which is about as much time as the physicists are allotting us to really get our job done. So if that's the kind of good news, the truly bad news is that, you know, in that 10 years, the crisis has deepened dramatically. Uh, we're closing in on 420 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. And the results are all around us. They're all around us this morning. We just saw the earliest 
L storm ever to hit the United States, crash into Louisiana and Texas overnight. Uh, it intensified more rapidly than any hurricane in the history of the Atlantic. As it came ashore, its vast wind field was sucking up huge quantities of the smoke that's pouring out of the wildfires in Colorado and California and helping distribute it across the nation. Uh, the biggest fires in California history are, are burning right now. And that's just, you know, the 4% of the surface of the earth that's the United States. Any place you turn, similar things are going on. Uh, there's more water. Thanks to record rainfall in China, there's more water pouring behind the Great Three Gorges Dam right now than any time since it was built. Uh, uh, that's scary. Everything is scary. So uh, just to kind of set the scene in the biggest possible terms, um, you know, we've known about climate change for 40 years. We've wasted, well, 30, we've really known about it for 30 years. We've wasted those 30 years, largely due to the political power of the fossil fuel industry. Movements have managed to break some of that power. The divestment effort that you talk about has been a big part of it, and many thanks to everybody who has worked on their college campus or in their church or at their pension fund to get big change. We're, we're actually about $15 trillion in now, and it's become the biggest anti-corporate campaign ever. Um, that sets the stage, perhaps, for rapid action and rapid action is what we desperately need. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said in 2018 that if we had not fundamentally transformed our energy systems by 2030, and they defined fundamentally transformed as cutting by half our emissions, then our chances of ever meeting the targets we set in Paris were nil. Um, that means we have to squeeze the work of 40 years into 10 and it's going to be very, very hard. And as we're doing, some of us are doing that work of trying to launch the flow of carbon into the atmosphere. Others are doing what in some ways is the much more beautiful and much more inspiring uh, work of figuring out what comes next and what the world looks like on the other side of this. And that's why it's so important you know, why really what Mary has to say is way more important than, than what I do, what I have to say. Uh, I think at best the role that people like me are playing are, are kind of firefighters trying to put out uh, the blaze, but the work of the people who are going to rebuild the world afterwards um, um, put us down some new paths um, those are the things that are really, really important. Thank you, Bill. Um, so, and thank you for teeing up Mary so well. So, uh, <laughs> thank you, Bill. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, so, Mary, I was there that historic night when you hosted the conversation between your dad and Wes Jackson in 2016 that was the Schumacher lecture and a lot was about sustainability and the wheel of life. Um, and then you followed up in 2018 with what will it take for farmers to be able to afford to farm well and 
how do we become a culture that supports good farming and um, land use? And I wonder, have you found answers to the questions you raised? Uh, well, first of all, uh, yes and no, but let me start with um, thanking the Schumacher Center. It's uh, an honor for me to serve on their board. I don't think I've been an especially useful board member, but I'm proud of my association with Susan Witt and the people who work with her and with you, Jody, and my fellow board members. Bill McKibben has been, uh, was on my mind long before I met him. I think I first met you, Bill, in Harvard Square, my one and only time there. Uh, Daddy was reading at a bookstore and you were doing something. And I remember you saying, if a bomb drops on Harvard right now, it's gonna take out all the environmental writers in the university in the uh, United States of America. <laughs> but um, I have valued your work and your friendship with um, my father and um, I'm glad to be here with you today. Um, I did, uh, it was said that I moderated the conversation between Daddy and Wes. Did you say it was 2016? Um, it is impossible to moderate Wes Jackson. And, um, and who would want to? <laughs> so, but it was certainly a fun night. It was funny and, and energetic. And, um, and that's what um, I've come to really value about my, my own work and my work with other people is that it's, it's hopeful, um, good work to be involved in and it's often funny and um, you know we're enjoying our lives so it's not just things are bad there's just no <laughs> there's no way around it and I live in the middle of a suffering land a place that I've loved all my life and um, I grew up thinking I could remember things that I was too young to actually remember because the culture was so strong here um, well, we've lost so much. Um, I really saw the end of the community agriculture that existed in Henry County, Kentucky. And uh, my father saw the end of solar powered um, agriculture. I saw the end of the community agriculture. It's a lot of, en a lot of ending in um, our lifetimes. But my work is inspired by the work of others. I've come up with nothing original and I don't ever expect to. My grandfather remembered his father coming home from his, the sale of his tobacco crop in, in uh, 1908 with nothing after he paid the warehouse fees. That's nothing for a year's work. Um, I heard a story yesterday that uh, a farmer uh, sold his tobacco crop last year at 72 cents a pound. This isn't going to mean a lot to a lot of the listeners. It just let, let us just say that in that amount of time, we've learned nothing about how to support small farmers in um, and to support good farming. The my father wrote an essay called "The Problem of Tobacco," and I'm not going to go into that much. But when I speak about the good farming that existed here. I'm talking about the tobacco program that my grandfather was um, one of the writers of and not the crop, not tobacco. So anyway, so what, 
what I thought when I started the Berry Center in 2011 and what I think now is that we have to think about production control, parity pricing. Um, if we're going to encourage another generation or we're going to build a farm base again, we have three quarters of 1% farming. We've left, uh, we've got I think maybe 15% of us now are living in rural places. We've got an abandoned countryside. We've got an urban constituency. Um, it is the, the, the demand for local uh, products, locally raised good organic products, is said to be five times the supply in uh, 40 miles northeast of here in the city of Louisville. Um, but we, in the 30 years I've worked on trying to, to get a local food system up and going in this area, we still can't move farmers' produce from Henry County to Louisville um, and into a market that pays farmers fairly. So we've left farmers two choices. They can be large and entrepreneurial or they, excuse me, they can be large and industrial or small and entrepreneurial, and we have put almost nothing in the middle. Now, two things have happened in the last, uh, how, when was Donald Trump elected? When Donald Trump was elected, I thought for a few minutes uh, or a few days, we're gonna have an opportunity now to talk about what's happened in rural places. We're gonna have an opportunity now to talk about the fact that we've been treated as sacrifice zones and our raw materials have been stolen at the lowest possible price for years. Uh, that it, it looks like the point of industrialism is to move uh, the, the country's resources into the, for the, to, the benef to benefit cities. So I thought for a little while, well, this is an opportunity. Uh, we, we can talk now about what's going on. Well, that has, it hasn't turned out that way. What I've seen in the New York Times, which I at least look at every day, is uh, rural people called not real Americans. Um, urban people are real Americans, rural people aren't. Well, I think we need to talk about what's happened to rural America and why rural America is, uh, for one thing, voting the way it's, it's voting. The other thing um, that's happened is uh, this pandemic. And again, I thought you can't be glad about people suffering and people sick, but I thought, okay, now let's talk about the fact that we need local production for local markets, that we need to shorten supply lines. What else could Homeland Security possibly mean? Uh, well, it evidently doesn't even mean we have a plan of any kind. But um, so I thought, okay, let's take this opportunity. Well, we're working on it and we're making it work at the Berry Center. Um, but I'm hearing nothing from um, talking heads that have the stage right here, right now in Kentucky or anywhere else about building uh, local infrastructure to take care of our own people. But um, I will say this, that since I went to work uh, at the Berry Center, I feel much more hopeful than I did before. I was a full-time farmer. I benefited from the local food movement as did my husband. My husband is still a full-time farmer. Um, 
I started the Berry Center really because I thought I thought I think that the local food movement has, uh, while given a lot of opportunity to a few farmers, it has failed. It has failed to deepen into a cultural change. It has failed to value country people. It has failed to talk about the problems of mobility, the problems of our distaste for physical work, and so on and so forth. So, uh, but the work is hopeful. Um, I don't think things will ever get so bad that a person of good intention can't do what's right in front of them to do. And I think we need more people in the particular places they are going to work, take an inventory of what you've got to work with and go to work on it. Strengthen what's already there and make it better. Um, I think we got to quit with the, with the fantasy that we're going to come up with something new and original and, and look at good examples um, from the past. And they're not perfect examples. We got plenty of work to do. So, um, so anyway, that's where I am today. And I still think that two of the most important questions of our time are the ones that you talked about, Jody. Uh, what will it take for farmers to be able to afford to farm well? Um, our, many people have a lot of ideas about what farmers ought to be doing. Well, they're not gonna do it if they can't afford to do it. Um, and uh, how can we become a culture that will support good land use? Uh, we got a long way to go on that. And um, we, another thing we've got to get over is this idea of limitlessness. So, um, so anyway, I think, that, I think that pulls us up to today. Thank you, Mary. Not sure where, where I started, but I ended. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the things that I really hit me that you said was that um, your hope is in your engagement. And um, so, and uh, Grace Paley has a great quote, um, the only recognizable feature of hope is action. And um, I think there is a lot of fretting without action and that back, you know, stepping back and engaging to create. And so you said, you know, the, what you're doing at the Berry Center is, is, is helping. Could you describe just a couple of things? Like if somebody is watching this, you know, what were some transitions that just anybody could take that engages them? And one of the things you said was just working. I mean, um, our fear of work is not making us happy. Um, Bill wrote a bit about this in um, his, his book, but um, what, what, you know, if you, you, you started the Berry Center and you said, these things are working, what could you give us a couple of examples? Well, I think um, I started the Berry Center with, with an inventory. I don't know that I knew that I was doing it, but I was, I said to, I mean, I've lived here all my life. I've farmed here all my life. Um, and I could see that in spite of, at, in 2011, I would say roughly 30 years of a local food movement, um, that things were getting worse, not better. That we, tobacco, uh, a crop very well suited for her, uh, small, marginal, diversified farms was gone. Again, I'm not, I'm not speaking in favor of tobacco, but I'm saying that we, 
tobacco was, uh, was uh, a problem because of the health issues, of course, but it was said to that we, we must get rid of it because, uh, because it's not a healthy crop. That crop, which uh, I grew up working in, um, which, which took up two or three acres of a you know, couple of hundred acre farm, that was a quota system, that crop was replaced by corn and soybeans. We did not trade in this small diversified agriculture and the backbone of that small uh, agriculture for health. And nobody's talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, we traded it in as for large and industrial, which does not, it shouldn't, it doesn't suit anywhere, but it certainly doesn't suit our rolling countryside. So I, I began to think about what we have here and what we what was still working. And we had good land. We have well-watered land. We still have some people who have a passion and a calling for farming and are able to farm. Uh, our land is broken up into fairly small pieces. We uh, The average farm in Kentucky is about 100 acres. So things hadn't been broken into as it has been in some places, thousands of acres or into little lots of five acres. Um, we had the history of the Burley Tobacco Cooperative, um, which had been, because it was, flies in the face of the free market, had been pretty much conveniently forgotten by our land-grant university and the Farm Bureau. Um, we had the history of it. We had my grandfather's papers, my uncle John's papers. Um, so I said, I just set about to, I just got started. Um, the first day the Berry Center opened, my colleague, uh, Michelle Guthrie, who is the archivist here, we were sitting in our little office on Main Street in Newcastle and was like, well, okay, well, let's fix agriculture. <laughs> and so we started with this archive with an education program. Uh, farmers have to stop the miseducation of farmers. Um, we've got a meat program here based on the principles of the tobacco program that's working with young farmers. And actually given that the average farmer in Kentucky is my age, um, and I may have mentioned that I'm 62, um, these farmers are young, they're under 40. Uh, and they're, they're working in factories up and down the Ohio River for the right to farm. It's crazy. So, um, and so yeah, thank you. I mean, that's, that's, I think, what people need to hear is it's like you need to start where you are, ask the right questions, and figure out what's not working and find what wisdom exists. Thank you. And I think we that's also have to, I, one more thing, I think we have to, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Bill agree with this or not, but I feel in my work that I'm responsible for the effort. I am responsible to go to work. The result, the result, is not in my hands. I mean, I've got to do the best I can do, but I'm not responsible for it to work out perfectly. Because if I were, I'd have to quit. Mm. <laughs> you just you couldn't live with that. So. Um, Anyway. That's perfect. Thank you. Yes. Um, we are kind of driven in this uh, capitalist world to make things perfect, which does depress 
and innovate people. So Mary, um, do you have a question for Bill? Um, oh gosh, I have lots of questions, Bill. <laughs> um, I, I, can I ask two? Of course. <laughs> uh, one is um, your your book, which my, I couldn't remember the title of until just a few minutes ago, but I think it's Oil and Honey. It was a huge help to me. Um, a couple of years into starting the Berry Center, I thought, I mean, I'm a, I'm a farmer and I like cooking and I like homemaking and I like, I liked my private life. And suddenly I was like, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm no longer doing the things that I love. I'm now said to be by other people an activist. Um, that was difficult for me. And, um, and that's been hard for me. And it's been hard for me to, to reconcile the slog it all is, you know, it, it takes, I, I have to wrestle with this. And that goes back to what I just said uh, about not being responsible for the result, just the effort. I mean, it's, it's a, we are, we set about every morning to solve the problems of the day, to keep the education program going, the meat program going, the reading program going. And, um, and some days I'd like that all wrapped up. And there's one other question. I'd also like to know why we can't seem to think of one more than one movement at a time. It's a, um, that's, in some ways, those questions are linked and they're really, really good ones. And there's ones that, I mean, there are obviously no perfect answer to them. I mean, the question about why we can't think of more than one movement at a time, I think happily we're beginning to make real progress on. As an example, the, the climate and environmental movement over the last six or seven years has really morphed into a, a kind of climate justice and environmental justice movement. And it's done a way better job than it used to of taking into account uh, people you know, living in extraordinarily vulnerable communities. It's increasingly led by people from those communities, by indigenous communities. Uh, people on, uh, since, you know, I spent a lot of my time working on the fossil fuel industry, the leaders now of this movement are often people whose uh, locations are um, just daily wrecked by that industry, um, you know, and I, one's really feeling for them today. One of the, a couple of the towns that took a huge hit from Hurricane Laura, places like Port Arthur in Texas, are just like sacrifice zones to the fossil fuel industry to begin with, you know? Um, uh, that's the town where the Keystone Pipeline is supposed to end. And I mean, it's, you know, just, uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it, it's a poster child for environmental racism. So it's been good to watch some of those movements starting to come together. Um, um, but, <laughs> It's also true that, I mean, I often, and I see this even in the sort of question and answer section here, you know, there's people saying, 
Bill, why don't you, you know, you should be working on uh, uh, carbon sequestration in the soil and so on and so forth, which I definitely should. I just find that it takes, you know, that standing up to the fossil fuel industry seems to have taken every available hour and brain cell that, that you know, I have. So part of the part of the job, part of this whole thing is figuring out how to link together people who are doing different but complementary things, you know. And, and so increasingly, I've taken my job as just trying to raise the profile of highlight point to people who are doing great work all over the place. Um, um, I get to write this uh, newsletter every week now, this free newsletter for the New Yorker that anyone can subscribe to. And it's ostensibly about the climate crisis. But every week I get to do a Q&A with somebody, someplace. And it's been really fun. We, I call it passing the mic uh, to get to just find as many different people working in as many different sort of corners. And one of the most important and interesting and emerging ones are these questions around uh, land use and climate, farming and climate, soil particularly. Uh, you know, soil is one of those things. If there's, if there's anything that we've ignored for a very long time, it's soil. Uh, people have paid extraordinarily little attention to it, and we're coming to realize what a mistake that is, that it represents uh, one of the things on earth that treated differently uh, might produce real and, and pretty profound changes in uh, the way that the world works. So those are the kind of things that I try to highlight and get people on. But I guess the other reason is that it's hard to get everybody, you know, hard to, is that we are in just the most horrible of emergencies right now. I mean, the world's going through things that it's never gone through before. We're watching the rapid disintegration of the ice sheets at the Arctic and the Antarctic, uh, the rapid acidification of the planet's oceans. And we really do think that the next decade represents probably the last period of really good leverage we have to get much done about any of this. So I, I do think there's a, some triaging going on of just people saying, you know, we've got to see what we can do to try and put the fire out, you know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't hold, I mean, look, I'm not glibly optimistic about all of this. Um, uh, and, you know, the cheerful name of the book I wrote 30 years ago that was the first book about climate change was The End of Nature. So I'm not completely convinced we're, is coming out of this in amazing shape. But I know that if we are, that, you know, that our chances are um, powerfully informed by the work. I mean, your dad was always the, you know, single most important writer and thinker for me, uh, the person who really formed my sense of the world more than any other. And the work that's, um, that, that sort of falls under that uh, rubric it remains the most important long-term work that there is, you know. And one of the reasons that makes me so happy to watch, I want you to talk about for a minute, um, 
since you're down, you're down in the bluegrass state and I'm up in the Green Mountain state, I wish you'd talk for a moment about this work that y'all are doing with Sterling College in Vermont and what that's gonna look like. And in a broader sense about how to get kids, uh, I mean, young people are absolutely now at the forefront of the fight, the kind of political fight, and that's wonderful to see. Um, are you finding the same kind of enthusiasm among young people for being at the kind of center of the kind of reconstruction that we need to do, uh, the, the, the world that comes next? Um, our, our efforts um, with what my father is not happy is called the Wendellberry Farming Program of Sterling College. He doesn't understand why we needed to use his name because he never Googles anything. So, so um, um, started um, in a, with a little college in Kentucky uh, called St. Catherine College. And um, that, that was the first thing we undertook when we started, the, when the Berry Center got started in 2011, besides the archiving papers. Um, because we know we are desperate for good farmers. We are desperate for people who understand um, how to, and, and, and wish to leave the place that they make a home um, better, or at least as good as they found it, if not better. So how do you, how do you make yourself at home in a particular place? Well, our education system simply is leaving all of that out. So we're offering a liberal arts degree in farming. Um, I just left the students actually to come and sit in this chair and do this call. Um, we have bought a farm for the, for the good of the students of the farming program and, for, and to work with the farmers that in our home place meat program. Um, It's wonderful to have those young people around, first of all. Um, wonderful. I, I was, you, you, know how it is, you know how it is when you start something and then you think, oh, okay, it started and now you're going to have to live with it. <laughs> well, that's how the first day the kids were here, uh, suddenly there are 12 human beings running around all over the Berry Center and they're in, you know, and I thought, um, I wonder what this is going to be like. What's it going to mean to our work? Well, it's inspired our work. It's energized us all. It's been, it's wonderful to have them here and wonderful how seriously they take it all, but also what a good time they have uh, learning and working in Henry County and to our amazement and delight. Uh, we've got, kids from generational farm families in Kentucky, kids who have some access to land. So, um, I mean, to talk about turning something more quickly, if we can affect, if we can get a hold of young people who want to farm and have access to farm land and not lose them to land-grant universities um, and turn them a little, 
then we're a lot farther along because even if, if, if young people are raised on farms that maybe don't practices what we call regenerative or whatever the word of the day is, um, they know what it's like to be dependent on the weather. They're country people. They know how to live in the country. Um, this is, this is a, a boost to the culture, to our efforts to turn the culture. So we call this, uh, stealing from our friend Wes Jackson, we call this an education for homecoming. Um, what's it gonna take to live well on a particular place? Well, it's gonna take knowledge of history and geology and soil science and animal husbandry. And uh, they need to understand, you know, they need to understand or have, um, they need to understand literature, the great lineage of, a, of agrarian liter, literature to which their efforts belong. They don't have the culture that I had. They're not surrounded by people who will uh, support them in the way I did. They need those teachers. They need those uh, writers. They need music. Um, they need to be able to entertain themselves. They need to understand that they are going, going to not be able to solve problems with money if they want a life of farming. But, uh, but a life of using your head in a particular place, doing something you passionately want and love to do, every day is not gonna be great, but a lot of them are gonna be great. Um, these, these, these young people have an opportunity to think of themselves, to think of a vocation not just a job. Um, my father calls this working, he's, he's very funny when he says this TGIF, thank God it's Friday, this working for the weekends, uh, working toward retirement, he thinks it's a death wish. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think we have a responsibility to tell these young people something about what we know something about what we've done wrong, something about what's been left out. Um, but also what we've learned of joy and contentment and so on. So uh, we have a good partner in Sterling College. It's a tiny little school at the, in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Um, I don't think we could partner with a bigger school, although some bigger schools were interested. Um, we've got three wonderful professors who have, uh, who have moved to Henry County to teach. Um, and now we have a farm that the Berry Center is half paid for um, on which they can learn. So, and they're going to my mother's church. This is, you know, some of them are. This makes my mother happy. They're in making me happy. <laughs> So Bill, there, there was that question um, from the audience about carbon sequestration and, and, and Mary and the farming. And um, in um, the work at 350, you're, you're literally standing at the front of the fight and saying, you know, like, how do we pull down the great um, uh, causer of the problem? Um, but are there, you know, ways to intersect what Mary's doing and what 350 is doing? Because you have, an amazing amount of young people that um, you've inspired, engaged, and activated. Um, what do they do when they're not um, holding the fire hose? Well, so, I mean, let's talk about this in the largest 
uh, terms, the climate crisis, which is the biggest thing that's ever happened on the planet, at least in human history, uh, is basically a math problem. Um, we're putting way more carbon into the atmosphere than uh, the forests and oceans of the planet are capable of absorbing at the moment. And hence the planet's heating up and fast. So, I mean, think of it like a bathtub that you're you know, filling with water and it's now overflowing. So job one is to turn off the faucet. And that's the work that we're about when we try and take on the fossil fuel industry and put them out of business. And, and that's a hard job, but we're getting somewhere. I mean, when we started this divestment campaign and these pipeline fights about a decade ago, Exxon was literally the biggest company on earth. And last week it was, you know, the Dow Jones dropped it from their index uh, where it had been for 92 years. It was no longer big enough to be part of that. So we're making progress fast enough. No. Um, but along with shutting off the faucet into that bathtub, the other thing you can do is enlarge the size of the drain at the bottom so that you're getting carbon out of the atmosphere. And one of the places that it can go is into the soil. And soils can be, uh, soils can soak up both more carbon and methane than they are at present. Um, and to make that happen, you'd need to be changing agricultural practices and so on and so forth. And that's really important. And people are doing good work on it now. The science is still new around it. We're not even that good at measuring what kind of changes and fluxes we're seeing. But, you know, it's people like Wes Jackson and the people he's brought to the Land Institute in Salina that are at the forefront of this kind of science. A reason that it's difficult, and let's be clear about this, is because there are something like a billion farmers on this planet. And so, you know, and an awful lot of agricultural practice is rooted deep in history or it's deeply rooted in kind of uh, profit-driven systems that we have now. And as Mary knows, changing those is not easy. Um, you know, it's incredibly hard to fight the fossil fuel industry, but at least it's a manageable target set. You know, we've got 10 or 15 huge, huge players. There's some pretty huge players in the agricultural realm too. And I think it's time for people to be going after them and, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the Cargills and the ADMs and things of the world. Um, and it's precisely the work that people like Mary are doing that provide us with the templates we need to sort of take them on in those ways. So I'm going to combine a couple of questions from the audience. Um, and one is, um, Mary, uh, I live in South America, and people here are thinking the same way and looking to indigenous communities for wisdom and inspiration. What historical sources of wisdom can we turn to in the US to inspire a healthier, more just relationship with nature, food, and each other? 
Well, I was just thinking when um, Bill was talking about um, the science of soil, I suppose, what we, that we haven't paid any attention to it. And so on the culture here, and of course, I'm not talking about very old culture. Um, we managed to get rid of very old culture very quickly here. But um, in the last couple of hundred years, uh, there was certainly plenty of bad farming in Kentucky, bad farming all over this country, but there was some good farming too. Um, my grandfather, uh, my father's father, uh, used to say the way to make money on a farm in Kentucky is grass, meaning grazing animals meaning not thousands of grazing animals, meaning uh, in Kentucky, the average cattle herd is 27 mother cows. It's pretty small. So what he was saying, um, what he was alluding to was that the culture of good farming here protected the soil. It kept it under cover. It kept uh, rolling landscape covered. Um, we didn't plow fence row to fence row. Um, so there are, you know, fairly recent examples of pretty good farming in, uh, Kentucky. They're good examples of farming all over the world. Um, but we've, in this country, I mean, our education for homecoming is a direct response to our, obsession with education for upward mobility, um, our education to get people out of work, to get people out of their own home places, get them up and get them out. Don't send them home. I mean, so I don't, I don't think I'm doing justice to the question which deserves justice, but th there need to be more people who are willing to um, turn away from the siren song of limitlessness and say, I'm going to stay, I'm going to apply my gifts, my uh, everything that I am to this particular place. As Gary Snyder said, you don't, some, uh, some people can't stay home and I understand that, but you can stay somewhere. Stay somewhere, make a home somewhere, figure out, uh, we've never settled th this country, we've colonized this country. Let's figure out how to settle it. Um, and let's figure out from, the, from the, good, the good things that we know from the past, and there are plenty that I'm aware of in our state, and the terrible things, and there are, pl there are plenty of examples of, of horrors in this state. So, um, so uh, that's my, that's so my I, best shot at it. I love that you came up with the settling, the, um, your, your dad's book, The Resettling of America. Somebody asked, um, is there any hope for a resettling of America? Of course there is, and, but I don't think, and you know, that was a mistake I made. The first, uh, the first um, conference and the only conference that the Berry Center has had, uh, I called it, the resettling. What will it take to resettle America? I was wrong. And I knew I was wrong about two minutes after it was too late to change it. We've never settled this country. Um, we've colonized it. 
We, we don't know how to live here. When people talk about sustainability, I don't think many, I think about a handful of people have the slightest idea what they're talking about. So uh, um, I, maybe I've overquoted my friend Wes Jackson, but gosh, it's hard not to quote him. Um, he said to me years ago, years ago, he said, if all we get out of this movement are squiggly light bulbs and Priuses, we won't have done much. Mm -hmm. uh, we we've got deeply cultural work to do, um, but it is hopeful work. What else would, what else would we be doing? I'm, I mean, once it occurs to you that you got to do something, um, I mean, you can either accept things as they are right now and accept the fact that a lot of people are going to die and accept the fact that a lot of people are going to suffer. Or you can say, no, wait a minute. It doesn't have to be this way. It can be another way. It has been. Another. There are examples. So let's go to work. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, Bill, there's a question here about how do we foster intersectionality among movements to create transformative change? And you've done a really good job at that at um, 350. Take that any deeper to help the audience understand how we can all do that. Well, let's, let me build a little bit on what Mary was saying. Um, and in answer to that last question, one of the things that's really powerful right now across North America and around the world is the emergence of indigenous communities at the forefront of all kinds of work, clearly at the forefront of this work around climate change. Um, you know, people saw it at Standing Rock, but it, you know, didn't surprise me a bit to see that because I, I, all those, many of those people, people I've been working with for years, and they're the best people in the, and the same thing in the South Pacific, and the same thing in Australia, and the same thing in South America, and the same thing everywhere we work. Now, that's important for a lot of reasons. I mean, the kind of utilitarian one is when we, you know, exiled Native Americans off their land, we tended to remove them to places that we thought had no value at all, but turned out to be on top of big carbon deposits or astride the corridors we needed to move coal and gas and oil to market. So, they, you know, it's been powerful, but it's powerful in another way. It's really useful to have and remarkable to have the oldest, most ancient wisdom traditions on this planet, indigenous wisdom traditions, lined up pretty squarely with the most modern uh, uh, wisdom traditions. The view from the satellite and the supercomputer and the view from the sweat lodge are in remarkable agreement about a lot of things, mostly that the conventional wisdom that the rest of us grew up with uh, about infinite economic growth and whatever is just wrong and, and juvenile beyond wrong. So that confluence is, I think, extraordinarily powerful. And you see it playing out not just in resistance fights, but in all kinds of things. Um, you know, I, I've been really uh, happy to watch uh, my uh, old friend Winona LaDuke, um, who's, you know, not only leading a lot of the opposition to big pipelines in the upper Midwest, but doing great work to preserve traditions around wild rice and to take the next steps in local agriculture in the upper Midwest and so on and so forth. Um, 
Um, there's some remarkable work going on almost everywhere. In the largest terms, I mean, uh, one of the ways to make intersectionality work is for uh, people to learn to take a step back. I've been sort of slowly uh, but firmly stepping back from as public a role as I had at, at uh, 350 and in the movement, largely because it just, that's one of the ways that, that, that it's easier to get other people into the spotlight. And I, I sort of take that as my main role now is figuring out how to make that happen. And I like doing it. Um, um, and I think it's useful. And I think to a large degree, it's working. I think that the people who have emerged at the front of a lot of these movements are, are just who should be there. And it makes it all more fun uh, to use uh, Mary's uh, uh, words, which are the right words. Um, um, it's, this has got, there's got to be a kind of joyful, uh, uh, joyful possibility of a new and different order emerging um, because the old one hadn't worked so well. Thank you. And it doesn't work well. <laughs> um, so another question from the audience, how can we overcome economic barriers, land access, education, loan, healthcare, to allow young people to farm regeneratively and build resilient communities? What role does land tenure transformation play? Mary, I think that's yours. Oh man, that's a lot of question there. Uh, well, first I'll dodge it by uh, saying uh, we've got this education program here and we, um, let me start that again. Um, I spent last summer looking for the farm that we have bought and the farm that we bought uh, was owned by a, a farming couple called Dalton and Anna Brown. Last summer, Dalton was 94 and Anna was 85. I'd known them all my life, but had not, I had not been, seen them for a while. And when I went to visit, one of the first things that Dalton said to me was, we made a good living here. We had a good life here. And I thought, what would I give? to be able to say to young people who have the passion and the calling to farm, you can make a good living, you can have a good life. Well, Dalton and Ann could say that because they were willing and knew how to live within the limits of their particular place and their income. And to live, and they were able to live surrounded by other neighbors who lived in that same culture. So, uh, and in a culture that valued uh, the neighbor more than the farm, that meaning they valued having their neighbors more than they, they weren't, uh, they didn't have the rapacious need to own everything they could see. So, um, so one of the things that we feel called upon to teach these students is that is uh, you got to that's that's a character that's building character 
um, as I said before, not solving problems and solving boredom or whatever with money. Um, now, if we had a farm economy that would support good farming, then as, 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 as when I came home from college, I moved into that economy. I went to the local bank, which is two doors up from where I'm sitting here, and I borrowed enough money to buy a farm. That was based on the tobacco economy. That, and and um, we don't have such an economy now around entrepreneurial agriculture. So we've just got to put more um, structure around good, uh, around the economy of, or the economics around good farming, which we're managing, I think, to do. Um, I sit on the board of that bank uh, that I borrowed money from all those years ago. And when young farmers come to us for loans, we know that if they say they can make X amount of money with the CSA, we know that that's true. It's a small bank that serves a small community. So we can affect what happens to young people here, and we do. Uh, land prices here aren't exorbitant. They're high enough, but they're not exorbitant. It's not like trying to farm in Marin County, California, or, well, lots of other places like Marin County, California, that would be impossible. Um, but if we weren't working to put um, a, an, a stable economy under good farming right here, right now, I would not feel good about having an ag program right here, right now. Um, I think we've got to work on all these things together. Um, so I don't have a good answer to the question because I think the answer to the question is different all over the country and maybe the world. It depends on where you are. It depends on what your economic, what your financial situation is. Um, and it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard. Um, my father uh, has been asked for years, as I'm sure you are, Bill, how by people who come to his readings and so on, which he no longer does, but um, how, can I, how can I get started farming? And he says, don't get started farming if you don't know anything about farming. Uh, raise a garden. <laughs> um, try to learn something and, um, you know, and go to work on what's possible to do. Everybody doesn't need to be a farmer. More people than our farming need to farm. But um, so anyway, um, it may start with character first, uh, being able to do it, being able to stand it. You're not going to get vacations with pay. Um, um, you know, you're not going to have a middle class American life. Thanks, Mary. Um, so I'm I'm reminded of uh, economy. Uh, the the Greek for economy is making home, and a lot of what you've been talking about is we've, you know, even in the colonizing versus the settling, is that we've been convinced that the economy is capitalism, which is extractive, destructive, and oppressive, instead of that there was there is another exchange uh, of economy that builds home and builds soil, it builds a relation to the earth, it builds a relationship to each other. And there's a way that that's a fulfillment 
that somehow we've forgotten. That's the joy, connection, character, all these things that you've mentioned that um, somehow are scraped away by the, the dangly, glittery ball of capitalism. Um, that, you know, I think a lot of people, students particularly, are, you know, in school and they don't, there's like, that's the way out of schools. That's what they're designed for. Um, but they see that that's a dead end. Um, and I've noticed as a, also a farmer that, you know, all the farmers that come, they're like philosophy you know, students from college that just like, no, they just want a way out. <laughs> and farming is it. So we need more paths to creating uh, the state sustainability, um, the, the regenerative culture we need, not just in the farms. But one of the successes of, I've seen is talking to people with land and you say, what are you going to do with it? They have all this land. They don't know what to do with it. And their minds can only think in capitalist terms. So when I say I gave, you know, 350 um, acres away to the community and there's no better return on investment, they realize our minds aren't even trained to think that way. That if we really want a well-being, that of course there's a better thing to do with your land. It's to give it to young farmers, to sequester the, the carbon, to create a better life, to nourish relationship and connection that that farms and what happens in rural communities can happen. We see it even in urban communities with urban farms, they create a connective tissue that um, is missing. So um, that comes to the, the audience question about urban suburban um, areas in transforming agriculture and um, where do you see that your engagement in that? I'm not sure if it's Bill. I don't really understand the question. Well, you've talked about the question came out of the audience. What? Okay. So um, you've talked about the urban and the you know not valued, but um, is there a way that cross the intersection that we talked about intersectionality before? What? How do those intersect and how can they serve each other? Do you mean to break down the separation between rural and urban places? Is yeah. That, is that what that? Yeah. Um, well, it's a terrible disconnect, and it may be one of the most ruinous disconnects. The separation from the cities from the from the landscape that surrounds them. I mean, my um, I've been carefully taught by my parents uh, not to be optimistic, but to be hopeful. Um, uh, my father and others say, you know, optimism and pessimism are the two sides of the same coin. If you're optimistic, it's just all going to be great and you don't have to do anything. And if you're pessimistic, it's all going to be awful and you don't have to do anything. So I'm hopeful. And the idea that Louisville, Kentucky could be fed by the landscape around it and therefore making the landscape around it healthier and helping the city of Louisville all at the same time is, is, is so compelling to me that, um, you know, it's, it's what I think about at night when I can't sleep. I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's so hopeful and so necessary. Um, how is it to be done? Um, I think, I don't know how it's to be done. I know what we're doing. Um, um, we have just such a profound 
ignorance in this country. And one of the, uh, my father wrote an essay called In Distrust of Movements. And I reread it the other day. And I, I must say, I, I usually agree with daddy and I agree with him in this essay. Um, the question makes me think of the local food movement and the local food movement has concentrated on food. And I don't think food is a deep enough issue. Um, it's concentrated on food and it's, so it's become a sort of uh, fetish or sort of, uh, I don't know, it's, it seems to be on television a lot, people cooking and I don't see these things, but um, um the emphasis, if we're going to change anything, the emphasis must be on land use and rural communities, not just food, because we've got plenty of food. We're flush with food. So uh, all of the work that we're doing, while it's important and while I think it's changed some things, for a lot of our urban constituency, it remains just a nicer choice. Um, it's a better thing to belong to a CSA than not to. But, you know, if one year you're going to be in Spain for the summer, you're not going to be a part of the CSA. So um, we, haven't, we haven't seen that we're mutually dependent on each other, that we've got to have each other. Um, I don't know that we need cities as big as they've gotten, but we've got them. And we've got people that need to eat. And um, why we can't, I, maybe, the, maybe the problem is that we cannot seem to be interested in small solutions. We just simply can't. We had a, a people interested in a great big food hub in Louisville several years ago that was going to cost millions of dollars. And in the meantime, we can't figure out how to move trucks from 40 miles. <laughs> 40 miles up seven, the interstate close to here. Um, I think it's, a, I think, I think it's our bias against small solutions, small farms, small businesses, small anything. Um, so there's, no, I, I did not answer the question. No, that was, that was actually awesome. And I want to kick it back to Bill because he, he's built a movement on small, small, small that is huge. Um, and so, you know, just witnessing, Bill, that, you know, it started with talking to people. It's, I mean, I was, I've been part of it since you started it. And you really did the building blocks um, and built them, you know, started with building blocks when people didn't know what you were doing, including calling something by a number and a, and a, and a scientific term. So can you talk to the building of something from the small, because you valued the small and knew you had to invest in it to create all these fantastic changes that um, have happened that, you know, have transformed the whole industries. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but of course the, the work that we're about is much easier than the work that Mary's about. No, it really is. <laughs> in that sense, because, you know, it's all work that people can do part-time, you know, um, um, and not as the, they, they can do it while they're doing the other things that one has to do in this world 
at the moment to get by. Um, and I think that one of the things that we've, that I've concentrated on is just that notion that, um, that people are quite capable and want to be citizens. Citizenship was something that kind of got lost, you know, in the rush to um, everybody get rich or the kind of Ronald Reagan idea that markets were going to solve every problem and on and on and on. Why would you need to be a citizen if everything was going to get taken care of by, you know, the free market or whatever it was? Um, but I think that there's tons of people who are actually really eager to play a role in the future of the world because they're scared as they should be because they're hopeful because they care about their kids because they love the beauty of the world they were born onto because they get super angry at uh you know the handful of super rich people who are wrecking the world around us whatever it is lots of good reasons and sometimes young people say to me you know what what career should I be going into to kind of help with, you know, these huge cry, what should I be doing? And I mean, what I usually say is you should, and I think this sort of tracks with what Mary was saying a minute ago, you should be going into what you're good at, what your gift is. I mean, it would actually be the worst thing in the world to have everybody decide they had to be a farmer because not everybody's cut out to do it, you know? Um, and most um, of them will go broke. Well, it's right. It's hard work and it takes... The way it is right now. It takes an immense amount of um, judgment, you know, that not everybody possesses. Uh, farmers have to make an enormous number of judgment calls every day. So people should be what they're good at, but they should do their best to try and make sure that they don't, uh, you know, find some job that requires absolutely every moment of their waking existence to do it because then they'll have no time left for the work of citizenship you know which a lot of which happens you know in, in the evenings and on weekends and whatever and one of the things that uh you know um i've always admired immensely about mary's dad is that he's managed to keep farming uh all these years and on a beautiful farm uh that's you know, I've enjoyed wandering around immensely, um, but he's also managed to do it in a way that left him time for the work of citizenship. In his case, uh, uh, being an artist of a very, very deep uh, uh, sort, I mean, you know, I think it's quite possible that his greatest work is uh, will be remembered as his novels uh, and the picture that they paint of the world, and also to be uh, uh, in his own uh, uh, non-movement way an activist of uh, high order. Um, I won't, uh, you know, I won't soon forget uh, the uh, image of him heading into the uh, governor of Kentucky's office for the weekend with, uh, you know, toothbrush in his uh, shirt pocket and, uh, uh, you know, volume of Shakespeare in his hip pocket, uh, ready. To, I won't soon forget the image of him wandering around Washington, D.C. when we asked everybody to come uh, at the very beginning of this work we were doing to go protest the coal-fired power plant up on Capitol Hill 
this was 15 years ago or something. And some point in the course of the afternoon when we'd been wandering around for a long time in this march, I remember Wendell saying to me, you think they could arrest us sooner rather than later? It's getting a little <laughs> cold out here, you know? Um, 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 so, I mean, I, I mean, he strikes me as a very good model in, in this as in many other things uh, for this kind of work. But, you know, citizenship sounds like one of those old fashioned words, but man, in the Trump era, you sure get an you know idea of what happens when there isn't it, you know. <laughs> um, um, so I, you know, I, I, I'm. Uh, it may may be one of those old-fashioned and rural uh, ideas at this point, but actually, I think that it's been incredibly inspiring to watch lots of citizens appearing this year, and to watch people just standing up and saying, "No, it's not okay." for the police to go shoot people because uh, they're blind. I, you know, it was pretty remarkable last night to watch a bunch of uh, uh, basketball players uh, announce that, you know, the state of the world was more important to them than the, you know, job they were supposed to be doing that night to entertain everybody. Um, so I think that there's some things afoot now. And, and whether they're afoot on a large enough scale and, you know, I mean, who knows? We'll get our first reading on November 3rd. We'll begin to get some sense of whether, you know, uh, uh, any kind of common sense has begun to return to our society or not. Um, but even if things go well on November 3rd, that's the smallest of beginnings, um, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's oh, yeah. a um, huge amount of work to be done. It's been... Um... I certainly am not happy with the situation we've got and certainly didn't, uh, I'm, I'm the head of a nonprofit sitting in a nonprofit. I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to talk about, but um, I'm not happy with the situation as it is. But it's been amazing to me how many people have come to the Barry Center for meetings or gotten in touch with me to talk about the problems of agriculture that they seem to think started the day Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> this is simply not true. Uh, Obama's Secretary of Agriculture was an industrial ag guy. Um, things got worse under Obama out here. Things got worse under Clinton out here, um, which explains partly why rural places voted for Trump. They didn't see that they had a friend on the other side. They just voted for something different. I think it was wrong. I think um, I wish it hadn't happened that way, but it did. And I think it would behoove us all to try to understand it. I mean, if you're treated as a third world country or a sacrifice zone, um, you're not going to be rise up and call people blessed over it. So... Anyway, and I, I also wanted to say, uh, Bill, you talked about Daddy in the governor's office. The speech he gave before he went into the governor's office was called Compromise Hell. And it's a speech saying, uh, for decades, I've been saying, uh, I've been making this argument for the people and the land of Eastern Kentucky. And nothing, nothing has changed. So, um, you know, I'm done. Now I'm going to do something, which also <laughs> did no good. But, but 
we're just responsible to do what we've got to do or what, what's right in front of us to do. <laughs> so um, we're coming to the end of our time. I wonder, Mary, if you could leave us with some last words of wisdom. Um, well, I just, I'd like to say, tell a, tell a, just a very short little, uh, anecdote about one of our students, one of our students in reaction to the sadness that, um, Dalton and Ann Brown felt about leaving their farm. Uh, the students said to them, don't worry, we will take care of it now. And surely, Culture has thrived when that impulse to care for other people and for particular places has been, has been allowed to flourish, not starved out. When people can gather the virtues and rewards of their calling and make themselves whole. And that's what we're working for. I think all of us are working for the chance that that could be. Um, and I have enjoyed this conversation and I've been glad to be with you all and the other people that are out there that we can't see. Thank you, Mary. Bill, can you leave us some words of wisdom? Oh, I don't know if I've got any words of wisdom, but what a pleasure to get to listen to Mary and just reflect as always on the lineage and tradition from which she draws and which she is carrying forth. Um, you know, if people want to be buoyed up a little bit, um, uh, I, I got to say, I've been enjoying, I, I was reading last night, uh, the last edition of uh, Farming Magazine, of uh, David Klein's magazine, which has some wonderful uh, uh, essay from my old friend, uh, uh, Kirk Webster, um, that I wrote about in Oil and Honey, the best beekeeper in America. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there remains, there are, there's some good bones underneath, uh, uh, a lot of the, um, a lot of the overbuilt and broken down and glitzy and shabby, um, parts of our society. And I have a feeling we're going to need to find them. Um, um, because it's very clear that, that the things that people had been told would work out aren't working out so well. I mean, that's what it means to be alive on a planet at a time when um, we're losing the biggest physical features on the planet, uh, when we're losing the Amazon rainforest and the Arctic and Antarctic ice caps and and an awful lot in between. Um, um, things are not I mean, just objectively not going the way that that, that they can if we're going to persevere and and survive. And really, survival is what increasingly we're talking about. So it's the moment to be drawing on every good resource that we have and trying to figure out uh, what some strategies for the future look like and. Um, Thank heaven for the old witness of E.F. Schumacher. Uh, thank heaven for the witness of the Schumacher Center and all its efforts around 
uh, local economies and local finance. Thank heaven for the witness of Mary and Wendell and Tanya about uh, how to live successfully in place. Um, um, thank heaven for a lot of things. Um, um, it's, um, it's a tough moment, obviously, in 2020s about as tough a year as we've ever come up against. But if nothing else, I'll just end by saying that the pandemic reminds us that A, physical reality is real. Um, you know, it's fine for the president to call, you know, COVID a hoax, but it doesn't, the microbe could care less, you know, it's gonna keep doing what it's doing. B, it's a reminder that working quickly matters. You know, if you're going to flatten curves, be they carbon curves or pandemic curves, you have to move with dispatch. And C, most importantly, it's all a reminder that solidarity matters. You know, that 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 really humans have to be able to work together. Um, Ronald Reagan's great laugh line always was you know, the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, you know, ha, ha, ha. Um, the scariest words in the English language turn out to be, you know, we've run out of ventilators or the hillside behind your house is caught on fire or, or whatever it is. And those you cannot solve one person at a time. You solve them together or you don't solve them. And so this may be one of these moments when we figure out that really the time has come to work together. Um, we shall see, I hope so. But many, many thanks to all in this community who are doing their very level best. Oh, thank you so much, Bill and Mary. That was a beautiful conversation. I had lots of tears thank and you. lots of wisdom I'm going to take away. So um, as I said earlier this year marks our 40th anniversary of the EF Schumacher Lectures. And this will be the first year that our lecture will be held virtually. Uh, George Mombio of The Guardian in London and Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson will be the speakers on October 25th. I hope you can join us then. And until then, do all you can to cultivate your local peace economy and be a good citizen of the world. Thank you. Thank you. Amen, y'all. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Schumacher Conversations. To hear more from visionary thinkers in the new economy movement and to discover 40 years worth of Schumacher lectures, visit our website at centerforneweconomics.org. You can strengthen our mission to bring about a just and sustainable global economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org donate or by purchasing pamphlets of your favorite lectures at centerforneweconomics.org order pamphlets.